The Commercial Real Estate Show is an informative radio program for thought-provoking enlightenment. The show, nor the station, host, or guest through this show audio are providing legal, accounting, or other fiduciary advice. For representation to suit your specific requirements, engage an experienced professional familiar with your company, property sector, and market area. For recommendations to professional providers to suit your endeavors, you're invited to contact the host at commercialrealestateshow.com. Enjoy. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Thanks for joining us to lead, learn, and laugh. Learn market knowledge and best practices to lead your company's success. And laugh, yes, we have to have some fun along the way. Well, hello, I'm Michael Bull, your host to the world of commercial real estate. If you have any questions or comments related to today's show or about any commercial real estate-related endeavors, you're invited to call, email, friend, follow, tweet, connect, or join our circles, right? You can find them all at commercialrealestateshow.com. You know, real estate value is created by the user, I mean, the occupier, which in most cases is a tenant, right? Well, the use of the property and the landlord's and tenant's rights and their obligations are controlled by an important legal document everyone knows. It's the lease, right? Well, today we're going to talk about some of the more important aspects of leases and how they may affect the value of real estate. So the show today is called... Oops, I should have covered that that in the lease. lease. (laughs) So that should be fun. And let's let's meet our players here. First, uh, let me uh, introduce John Wiles, managing partner of law firm Wiles & Wiles. John regularly lectures on landlord-tenant law and teaches real estate courses for CE credit through Wiles & Wiles LLP Real Estate School. John has been an active member of the International Council of Shopping Centers for more than 22 years and is currently serving as Alliance Co-Chair for Georgia. John, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Glad to be here, Michael. And also, please welcome David Tenery, Principal of the Office Properties and Development Group of Regent Partners. David has been involved in the development of more than 6 million square feet in the U.S. and Latin America. David also uh, leads a class on commercial leases with Coordinate, which he's done for 24 years. David, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. Michael, great to be with you again. Also, please welcome Robin Hines, Senior Counsel with the law firm of Fowler, Hine, Cheatwood, and Williams. Uh, Robin's firm has a focus on the apartment industry, and he frequently participates and speaks at the National Apartment Association. And he's also authored a book, the Georgia Apartment Law Book. Robin, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. All right. Well, let's let's get started. And, you know, one of the things I think people realize in residential, or most people do, that, you know, uh, leases uh, and disclosures are required around leases on residential properties that were built before 1978 for lead-based uh, paint. And I also see commercial brokers sometimes, maybe they're doing a deal with an apartment rental uh, in it, and they don't realize that's a federal law, right? And they've got to include that in there. That is correct, Michael. Mm-hmm. If it's a, a pre-1978 residential house, the Environmental Protection Agency requires, and HUD does too, that there be a disclosure of whether there's any information known about the existence of lead-based paint or other lead hazards. So this is a requirement in all residential housing now. Okay. And that's so if you're even a commercial building that has one residential unit, it's a requirement, right? I believe that's correct, <laughs> and John handles that area a lot more than I do. Yeah. And, and what about um, penalties? What, what are some, well, you know, I forgot about that. 
That's uh, a very interesting oops. You do not want to forget about the lead-based paint disclosure because if the EPA comes in and audits the property, the penalties on this are severe. And I haven't checked to see what the uh, rates are at now, but uh, for each apartment, let's say, that has not had that done and it was required, you could be looking at ten, twelve, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 per apartment. This is a very heavy-duty problem. Oops. and. If you're a real estate and, uh, investment firm uh, or a REIT that owns property, this can be something that you've got to disclose to shareholders. Yeah. So that's one of the issues that could take you from oops to oh. <laughs> <laughs> Another word besides oops, right? Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the differences and requirements that are required in residential leases and commercial leases. I mean, commercial leases are a lot more latitude for shifting around who has what different responsibilities under the lease. Uh, uh, if you will, tell us what are some of the prohibited and required lease provisions and uh, say, a residential lease to start us out? Well, you're absolutely correct, Michael. There are big differences between residential and commercial. Mostly what I do is residential, and our firm represents about uh, most of the top 50 largest owners and managers across the country. And that's Robin Hines speaking. Uh, thank you. The um, One of the things that is typically you cannot do is in a residential lease you cannot shift the duty of repair from the landlord over to the tenant so even if that provision is in there it's not going to be enforceable big difference on the commercial even, side even in a single family home um, even in a single family home if you're renting that home you generally cannot shift that duty over uh, maybe something minor like mowing the yard, but we're talking about major repairs or the obligation of the owner and the landlord. Well, can I shift it in my house to my wife, make her do it? That, <laughs> absolutely. Just for you, you can do that. Okay. And uh, what about in commercial leases? There's a lot of latitude there, right? Yeah, there really is. There's the contract controls, and mm-hmm. at least in the states I practice, mm-hmm. the parties agree to what they are supposed to do. Yeah. You can put the duty on maintaining the roof, on the landlord or on the tenants, you can put the duty on maintaining the HVAC. Primarily, it's always on the tenant, so you can place the duty where you want to. Okay. And Robin, talk to us about residential leases and, and requirements related to the condition of the property at move-in and move-out if the landlord is going to be able to deduct damages from a security deposit. Sure. This is pretty much happens across the country because almost all states have some type of security deposit law. And it says that if you're going to take a security deposit, that you have to do a move-in inspection and list any of the damages there and give the uh, tenant or the resident an opportunity to agree or disagree with that. And then the same thing at move-out is that you've got to do another move-out inspection and estimate the damages. And, of course, the tenant or the resident can be held liable for damages exceeding normal wear and tear or even cleaning. If there's excessive cleaning, uh, it's not returned in a ready-to-rent condition. And the thing here is this. On the security deposit laws, it is extremely technical. If you don't comply, then you can't keep the security deposit. And if you use George as an example, it's even worse than that because you can't even sue for the damages, even though we know the tenant did them. Because you didn't adhere to the requirements. That is correct. And how? what's the time frame after the tenant moves out that you have to give them a notification of the damages? 
it it varies by state to state but it's typically the inspection has to be done within a few business days of the time that the uh, landlord takes back possession and usually that statement or the move out inspection and estimate of damages has to be mailed within about a month but it does vary from state to state okay and what's your exposure if you don't do it right and before you say that don't you love that when an attorney tells you you might have some exposure here. <laughs> you know, that's worse. That's worse, I think, than the doctor telling you there's going to be some discomfort. <laughs> well, in some states, they may uh, say that you have to pay triple the amount that you wrongfully withheld, or that the landlord wrongfully withheld, and that, uh, as sometimes happens, you could even be liable for the. Uh, tenants attorneys fees if they were successful and had to sue you to get back what they said shouldn't have been withheld and then sometimes you can run into a really tricky situation let's say if the damage wasn't just a small item but perhaps the whole building burned down because the tenant or resident left a fire or left grease uh, burning on the stove Okay. And let's talk about some of the other disclosures that are required by a landlord in a residential lease or, or otherwise after a, a tenant's uh, in, a, in an apartment building, let's say, for example. Uh, would a landlord have to disclose if the parking lot has, has flooded before or there's been security issues at the complex? That's a great question. And again, the same thing here is it may vary state to state very widely. For example, in Georgia, if you've had flooding from a river for three times during the last five years, you're supposed to put that in the lease, and if you don't, then uh, you've got a problem. A more interesting one uh, that sometimes refers to what I think in the industry is called a stigmatized property. Let's say that there was a suicide or a homicide in the apartment. Um, Oddly enough, it's not required necessarily to disclose that, but it might be. It, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The one thing we do know, though, is if the applicant who wants to move in or the t- prospective tenant asks about it, we have to tell them the truth. Yeah. Um, because well, otherwise that gives them a way they can get out of the lease. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I was uh, asked to market a duplex where there had been rather gruesome uh, murder and suicide in the top apartment had to be renovated. And the lady asked me to sell it. And I saw that I did not have to disclose it, but for reputation purposes, I was going to disclose it and told her that. She said, okay, go ahead and disclose it. So I thought, well, I'll at least try to sell it uh, for it not to be as much of a negative. So the headline on this on the uh, flyer was Killer Duplex. <laughs> okay, And the, uh, the guy at the closing was for some reason wearing all black. You know, so he wasn't carrying a sickle, was he? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, the Grim, Grim Reaper, I don't know who he was, but uh, it worked out okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break here and we get back more intel on important lease issues. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit BullRealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. What are you doing Tuesday and Wednesday of this coming week? Or if you're involved in special assets, workouts, or assist those who are, you're invited to attend the IMN conference in Atlanta. 
We have a link for you uh, on the show homepage, commercialrealestateshow.com. It's the second annual Southeast Bank and Financial Institutions Special Asset Executive Conference on Real Estate Workouts. I think the only problem with that, they needed a longer title for that conference. <laughs> it is a great conference. If you're involved in distress or real estate in any way, try to make it to Atlanta and uh, try to get to uh, that event. Well, our show today is called... Oops, Oops, I, I should have covered, covered that in the lease. <laughs> and you hate to hear that, right? Uh, the lease, the most important document in investment real estate. My guests are John Wiles, David Tenery, and Robin Hine. And gentlemen, I'd like to talk about commercial leases. We talked about residential, some of the disclosure requirements and, and things there. What about in uh, commercial leases? What do you see in your practice, John, uh, about requirements and some of the, uh, the differences in commercial leases rated the same subject? Well, as we talked about in the last segment, the biggest thing is most commercial leases and most states allow the parties that contract in a commercial lease to decide what they need to know. The law doesn't really require, I understand there are certain states, Illinois maybe is an example, where there are specific statutory requirements. So this is one of those things where you really need to say, you need to get a local lawyer, <laughs> answer the questions, and uh, you follow their advice. Uh, we regularly negotiate leases with out-of-town lawyers, and it's always fun. Yeah. Because they think what's going on in New York is the law all around the country, and we sometimes uh, clean up on them just because they don't know the local law. Uh, one of my favorite phrases in Georgia is called a usufruct. Mm-hmm. Only Georgia and Louisiana have that a term, and most lawyers don't know what it is. What is it? It is a term of possession for less than five years, which is not assignable, mm-hmm. not lienable, and it's what most leases in Georgia are. Mm-hmm. They're not estates for years, and people don't understand it, and... Uh, we always have fun negotiating that term out or dealing with that term. You can con- contract around it, but it is the law in Georgia and, and what, Louisiana. Okay. And what are the laws related to disclosures, gentlemen? If, if there's been a problem on the property, uh, there's been security issues, uh, what's required uh, or is, is nothing required in a commercial lease in that regard? Very little is required. And as I said here in the last segment, mm-hmm. listening to Robin talk about the, the federal requirements of disclosure under a residential lease, and John, uh, John introducing what's not required under the commercial, I'm reminded of why residential leases are perhaps very underlawyered and commercial leases are typically very overlawyered. Uh, and uh, it, really, when you look at the lease document, Michael, on a commercial side, what you're looking at is really a, a document that's taking forth the assignment of risk and responsibilities of the two parties. Very few things, in my experience, in any of the states in which we work, are requirements under the law in terms of disclosure and or who's responsible for what. It becomes about how the document's lawyered and negotiated at the end of the day. So it's a good document to have good counsel on either side. It is. You need to know when you're doing a lease, if you're concerned about security, you're concerned about flooding, you're concerned about radon is required in Florida. That's Mm -hmm. just to drop that one in. But if you're concerned about that things and you're a tenant or you're a tenant lawyer, you need to ask because there is a duty to be truthful. Okay, so so if you're a tenant and you ask in writing, Right. And then the landlord's responsibility is to, to be truthful. That's correct. And I think that's pretty much everywhere. If you, you can't make false representations, then you're opening yourself up. But you don't have to advertise. And, you know, it's, it's basically big individuals, big corporations dealing with each other. And the courts a lot of times will just step out yeah. and let, let the parties decide what the responsibilities are, which is the right thing. It's a contract. Right. And what about uh, collections? Let's say that you're in a residential lease situation and you've you've got a tenant that hasn't paid. You've had to evict them. Now you're getting a judgment. What do you need in your lease that would allow you to also get in that judgment your attorney's fees and costs? 
Uh, Michael, that's a good question. The attorney's fees uh, in a lot of states now require that if you're going to get them, it has to work both ways. It's got to be reciprocal. So whoever the prevailing party is, is going to be awarded uh, fees in that case. Sometimes it's capped. It could be listed as reasonable attorney's fees, or it might be something like 15%. But if it's not in the contract, you can't get it. And it can be very difficult to get attorney's fees. And in commercial, the opposite is true, depending on the state. Georgia, obviously, is different. Georgia specifies what a reasonable means. It means 10% primarily. You can go up to 15%. But in Florida, if you put reasonable, it's what the judge thinks is reasonable. And you have a hearing. The problem in Florida is you have to have a hearing to get attorney's fees. But until recently, you didn't get attorney's fees for the hearing to have attorney's fees. So, I mean, you, you, sometimes you don't get them just because it takes money, but the parties can negotiate that, mm-hmm. and uh, the courts will enforce it because they realize, hey, it's, you have to hire lawyers to enforce something. You had to pay something. And to John's point, one right. of the issues are that when you're, when you're negotiating prevailing party rights, you've got to be cautious to put the timeline and what the trigger is for payment of those costs. At what point in the process are, are the prevailing party able to collect those fees? Okay, gentlemen, what are some other things that you find in commercial leases that might make a landlord or a tenant think, oops, I should have covered that in the lease? The, the best one I come up with is parking. When I drove in today for the radio show, I saw a sign that says, uh, customers of the restaurant that's here must use valet parking. Mm-hmm. I've litigated several cases involving the use of the parking lot where the tenant goes out and blocks off an area for valet parking, and then the other tenants complain. Then you have the worst situation in the world for a landlord. You have two tenants suing each other, and you're dragged into the lawsuit where you could have defined the parking area and how to use the parking. In many of these new developments in town, there's not a lot of parking. You have parking-sucking operations, big restaurants, bars, and you end up with these small inline tenants really upset because you yeah. can't protect them. And that's important for a landlord and a, and a tenant. And I've also seen leases where certain types of tenants were prohibited because you knew they were parking hogs, right? Right. And I mean, and then we talk about it in the shopping center industry, mm-hmm. the retenanting of big shopping centers, putting in theaters. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the retailers love theaters because they bring that perfect 13 to 17 year old to come in to shop in their shopping center. Mm-hmm. But the other tenants don't like it because a movie theater with a big you know, premiere sucks up all your parking. What are some other items that you find that could be oops, should have had it in there? Dave? I think uh, oftentimes the use provisions and, mm-hmm. and your caution on what kind of tenants you're going to put it in. As, as John mentioned, just mentioned, there's an awful lot of mixed-use development happening across the country right now, and we're reurbanizing. And so on top and above and beyond the parking, you've got to look at your tenant mixes, who's going to be there, what the conflicts may or may not be, and uh, how you address that within the lease. And, and to the earlier discussions regarding disclosure rights and disclosure obligations and federal law, you, you can't discriminate against a tenant because of who comes to work for them and how they might dress. And so there becomes a real art in, in looking closely at the type of tenant mix you have, who's going to show up each day? Well, unless they're, Repu- they're going to ride the unless the Republicans, with. right? Then we can discriminate. Right? Uh, I've seen some. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Michael, one of the, <laughs> the interesting things we've had is you know, you're retenanting a shopping center. Almost every shopping center, at least because of the grocery store anchored shopping center, says we don't want any medical use. Mm-hmm. And now medical use is a big tenant going out there. The doc in the box, the nurse practitioners, all those kind of things. And so you have to look at your lease and say, well, I can't do a medical use. How do I get this medical use in? Because maybe it's owned by a big hospital chain. You know your rent's going to get paid. You want them there. But your grocery store lease says no. Have you, have, yeah, I'm wondering if anybody's had trouble with that. 
in another key issue is insurance. I'm, I'm surprised mm-hmm. how frequently in commercial leases the insurance language is blown through and not looked at as opposed to being sent out to the risk adjustment people and the risk management people to take a look at. And it's kind of, we have a couple of provisions in these leases I call friction fire, which I get a kick out of. And friction fire is defined as when good insurance rubs up against bad real estate. Yeah. <laughs> and who, who's responsible for uh, for the obligation to take yeah. care of that when it does occur? All right. Well, we're going to have to take a, a short break here. When we get back, we're going to talk about lease renewal rights and uh, how those affect uh, the tenants and uh, the leases. So stay tuned. More for you. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by France Media. France Media provides exposure to the world of commercial real estate. Visit francemediainc.com or call 404-832-8262. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show, where dancing in the studio is allowed. Well, maybe not for me. (laughs) You may be listening to the show anywhere from Miami to Seattle today. The show has been broadcast around the world for over two and a half years on iTunes, multiple websites, and is aired now on 12 stations across the U.S. We'd like to welcome our newest listeners in Albuquerque, New Mexico, on the Rock of Talk KIVA 1600. Our show today is called Oops, Oops, I should have covered, covered that, that in the lease. <laughs> We're looking at leases, the backbone of real estate value. My guests are John Wiles, David Tennery, and Robin Hine. And guys, I'd like to talk about a few more of the important aspects of, of leases. And uh, one of those, especially in retail properties, are exclusives and, and, and co-tenancy types of clauses. I know a lot of times we, we sell shopping centers, especially around the southeast. And it's interesting what we run into, even with very sophisticated clients, uh, REITs and so forth, where, you know, their asset management team and leasing has done some leases. Uh, three years later, that team maybe has adjusted a little bit or whatever. They do a new lease, uh, and uh, it doesn't coincide with the old lease as far as exclusives. Talk to us about the importance of uh, exclusives and um, how they work, uh, John. Well, it's for me as a litigator, I really appreciate those kinds of situations. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we have always in-house probably five to seven cases that involve mm-hmm. exclusive violations where the people haven't kept up with what was going on. They just didn't keep a good log. Uh, and one of the my favorite things, my wife is my one of my partners, and she does a lot of lease negotiations, and she always says, if you're going to give an exclusive, only give it going forward. Mm-hmm. Just And that's a disclosure. Hey, I'm a new tenant. We won't lease in the future to these these uh, tenants. That's a good point. Because if you agree to not have let a tenant do something that's already in the space, you got to be darn sure that their lease prohibits that action. And if you're in a grocery store anchored shopping center, I doubt it does. A grocery store can do just about anything because they they had good lawyers when they drafted those leases 20 years ago. Yeah. And when you move that from retail to office and or commercial space, it's just as important, if not even more so, because under sublease provisions and other very heavily negotiated uh, provisions within a lease document, as a landlord, you face the risk of losing control of who is in those spaces if you have co-tenancy and or exclusivity rights. And in an office environment, particularly Class A, law firms, investment management firms, and insurance companies are the most difficult to deal with as it relates to exclusive rights. They don't want competitive companies or firms within the building. 
So you can do that on the front and even on a go forward, but then you've got to be very tight in your sublease provision so that you don't accidentally allow, rather, uh, a use provision or a user to come in that shouldn't be there that's going to push you in violation of another lease. And it's interesting, John, to hear you say, you know, hey, as a lawyer, hey, that gives you a lot of business when when that's a, a violation and that's a problem on exclusives. And, and uses of the property. And one thing that, that we recommend, and sometimes we get a little pushback, is we're doing a, a lease for a landlord, and we say, look, we want to review all your other leases. And they're like, what? what? No, that's a lot of work. Why, why am I? Do- no, I don't want to do that. Well, well we got to make sure there's no violations here. And I, and I say I think that's a good practice. I yeah. worked for a firm when I was a baby lawyer, still had training wheels on my briefcase, <laughs> that we had a, one of my friends was an associate, and he had to read every single lease in an office building that was being sold mm-hmm. on one floor. They had four different tenants that had rights to expand in that same space. <laughs> and you know what the solution was? What? The buyer went to the seller and said, get out your checkbook, go buy out three of those four expansion rights. And you know how much money it took? A lot more money than it would have taken if you not let your leasing people give the same right to the same pe- to different people. And David, I guess you've seen that issue as well. Absolutely. I, I think probably the, the uh, most egregious lawsuit ever been a party to, unfortunately, was in my early days in real estate in Texas, Two oil field companies had a right of first refusal on the same floor in a high-rise office building. The floor was sandwiched between the two firms, and one of the firms took the, the uh, space down. They unfortunately had the second right. It was subordinate to the initial tenant. Uh, wait, the, the initial tenant waited for the space to be completely built out, and the week that the tenant moved into the space came to the landlord with an action saying, we had a right to the space we wanted. It was about a $7 million settlement in an office building, and that kind of killed the value of both leases. So. That was the first major oops I should have covered that <laughs> lease that I experienced. And, and see, it's not in, it really should be in the leasing if you want to, because these are all things that should be done when you're doing the lease. And people just don't do it well. They don't do expansion rights well. They don't do exclusives. And um, it's really, the lawyer has to do, if you're in your situation, has to go back and review all the leases. Right. And if you really want to pay a lawyer to read every one of your leases in a 20 tenant, Shopping center office building. Or an 100-tenant office project. Well, right. it's it's a small cost now or a big cost later. And, you know, it's interesting. I think, you know, we see some of our clients in some situations in commercial real estate where where people in the industry aren't paying enough attention to leases. And that's one reason I wanted to have this show today, have you experts in here, because leases are the backbone. They're, they're the power. They're, they'll give you the value. And as you've heard today, they can take away the value. Absolutely. Right. What was that, 7 or $8 million? Oh, absolutely. That, was, you know, that, that became known as the proctology, proctology provision there. <laughs> okay. I like it. Well, we're going to take a quick break. More Lease Intel headed your way. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Does your company provide professional services to the commercial real estate industry? The Commercial Real Estate Show is an excellent way to reach your target audience. For advertising options, visit CommercialRealEstateShow.com or call 888-612-SHOW. Welcome back. I'm Michael Ball, and this is the Commercial Real Estate Show. If you'd like to know the absolute latest on any commercial real estate-related topics, check out our on-demand show podcasts. For example, over the last two weeks, we've featured interviews with CEOs of retail REITs at ICSC Recon Convention on the convention floor in Las Vegas. 
We also had a very cool show on commercial real estate applications called There's an App for That. You can access these shows anytime on your smartphone or computer. Just visit iTunes or the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Well, our show today is called Oops, Oops I Should Have Covered That in, in the Lease. lease. Negotiation. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're looking at leases, the backbone of real estate value with uh, John Wiles, David Tennery, and Robin Hine. And, and gentlemen, one of the things that I think some people may overlook in uh, lease leases is who the actual entities are, right, of, of both the landlord and the tenant. Tell us how that's important, Dave. Absolutely, it's important. As we talked about earlier in the show, the document itself is nothing more than an assignment of risk and responsibilities. And mm-hmm. so the prevailing party, in my opinion, typically is the one that comes away from the table with the greatest opportunity to collect money with as little responsibility as possible. Mm-hmm. That said, at some point during the life of that document, uh, there could be, and, and in some chances likely will be, an event of default on one side or the other, and you've got to know who you're going to go to and who's there behind the warrant that's been made when they've taken the assignment of risk. And I'm amazed at how few people really understand who their landlords are, and that is critical. And one of the things I say to, to clients on this side as well as our partners is that when you are working on a document, before you really begin to negotiate that document, if you've selected that asset as the place your client wants to be, run a title report and make sure that early on in the request for proposal you understand exactly who that landlord is. Most buildings, you may have an 80-story building, and guess what? That may be your, your recall if you've got an opportunity to go collect damages, but unless there's equity on that building in any given day, you've got nothing you're going after. It's an SPE or a special purpose entity or a limited liability group, and so understand what your recourse is and where you're going to go. Yeah, I tell people LLC means there's no money there. <laughs> and you just if you think you're going after somebody, interestingly, when one of the things we've been talking about is if you're the landlord has an obligation to spend a lot of money building your space out and you're putting you need to make sure that that money's set aside that you can get to that money if you need it if the landlord has an issue so you know in the age of losing the loan or being foreclosed you really need to be careful as a tenant making sure that those obligations will be concluded by the landlord because you're stuck you've made the decision to lease there but you don't have a built-out space. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, when we're doing tenant representation, you know, our tenant reps will, will go to the capital markets guys in our shop and say, look, tell me what's going on the capital stack in that building. You know, what's what's the occupancy and uh, what's the loan situation? When's that loan coming due? And is that building upside down? Because if that is a single-purpose entity, right, they might decide, hey, no, let's just let this go back. Here are the keys. Mm-hmm. It's happening a lot. Yeah. And on the residential side, uh, we see this as a problem, too, because sometimes the ownership entities can be extremely complex. But one of the most overlooked things I see is that there's almost always a fee management company involved that's managing on a day-to-day basis. And sometimes there's confusion about who is listed as the landlord or the lease may say management. And so it's always important to be sure that the correct title of the owner is in that lease document and it avoids a lot of problems at a later date. So is it proper then to say, let's say the ownership entity is ABC LLC, but it's managed by Lane Company. Could it, could that be the way it's actually worded? And is that proper enough? It, it can be. As okay. agent for the owner, 
um, is one way that's typically done. But actually state who that owner is. That is correct. And then yeah. sometimes there's even confusion because the name of the apartment community is put in when, in fact, it's only a trade name. In right. fact, in a lot of residential leases, you're required to disclose the managing agent who is going to be managing for the and owner. could that also backfire on the landlord? Um, it certainly could. Actually, on the residential side, a lot of times land, the landlord and owner is not really excited about having their name in that lease, and so they're more than happy to have the management company run a, a screening up front for them, so to speak, so it's a little more uh, not as transparent sometimes. Yeah. A solution for some of this for the tenant world, and, it, and it's not always easy to get unless you're a tenant of strong credit and or of size, is a non-disturbance agreement. Mm-hmm. And and I think that, that clearly, for those who are not familiar with that, is a document whereby if there is a foreclosure or a transfer of ownership of the asset in which you happen to be a tenant, if you have a non-disclosure agreement, you are protected so that the new owner and or lender can't come in and just automatically kick you out. It is really important, in my opinion, to have those in this environment because we in the U.S. are currently in what I think, particularly on the office and the residential side, a rising rate environment that we haven't experienced in the last two decades. So when you have assets going back and you've got tenants in a classy office building that are paying 20 and 22 bucks a foot in a market that's now gone to 28 to 30 bucks a foot, you're going to have investors that are going to come in and they're going to specifically have their lawyers coming those documents, looking for opportunities to get those tenants out and or to restructure those leases so they've got the value in place that they're buying into. Are you going to allow the uh, tenant to torn to the new to the lender? Agree that I'll pay the lender rent if the foreclosure happens. Most likely, yeah. I think that's a fair trade. Yeah, and I think more uh, lenders are open to doing that, right? I mean, they realize that the, those leases are important to them, and and they're more open to it, aren't they? Yeah. One of the interesting things we do is we tell the tenant to go deal with the lender, and a lot of times the big tenants have a relationship with the lender. The lawyer can step out. You guys go work it out between you because it's really a contract between the lender and the tenant, not between the tenant and the landlord. And, uh, David, some um, some lenders are not? Uh, some lenders aren't. It, it depends really on whether the uh, the deals are in a CMBS, a commercial back mortgage security pool, and or a direct lender where you've got more of a Which is more prone to do it. I think the direct lenders are typically easier and more prone to do those kind of things than as an S and a uh, than the CMBS folks. Yeah, they're cause tough because the, yeah, the servicers about about what the servicers well, about. They, well, the <laughs> they servicers, don't answer phone calls. That's right, and they're about protecting their their own assets, if you will. And yeah. they've got sixteen investors or more in a pool of debt that are looking to sue them. All right, quick break here. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We have some very interesting shows coming up for you, including a show next week on REITs and a show the following week featuring interviews from IMN Special Assets and Workout Conference. We also have a show coming up featuring a look at some of the benefits of leading a commercial real estate associations. Be sure to catch shows of special interest to you. Sign up for a once-a-week email announcing the show topic at commercialrealestateshow.com. Our show today is called... Oops, I, I should have, have covered, covered that, that in the lease. lease. Uh, my guests are John Wiles, David Tenery, and Robin Hine. And David, some of the tenants in this 
market that we've been through recently have asked for uh, early termination rights. Uh, tell us, how does that affect you as a landlord on your asset management uh, processes and, and the value of the asset? You know, Michael, hate's a really strong word. So instead <laughs> of using it, I'll tell you, I absolutely hate these. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're value killers and, yeah. and for a number of reasons. And, and uh, I think you're right. Over the previous five years where a lot of things became uh, taken for granted, by tenants and landlords were willing to do things, that's one you're going to see pulling back very rapidly. As landlords, we're willing to do what we're supposed to do. We're willing to provide the space, provide the services. We want long-term, stable net operating income. And anything that interrupts that in the middle or earlier than it should be in a lease affects everything we've done, the capital we've put out on the front end. And certainly you can argue, yeah, well, we're going to pay all that back. Uh, it's going to be a penalty. There's going to be interest associated with concessions and free rent and TI and commissions, all the things you've had to do. But nonetheless, you've got an interruption in income, which means that with your partners and or your lender, you've now got a reserve capital out in the middle of that document that should be cleaned for 10 years to refit, release, and to, to remarket that space if the tenant happens to decide that they want to terminate early. So if we're going to do it, it's going to be incredibly painful. And the key component there, I think, on the landlord side is you want to have that payment due the day they give you notice. Not when the lease terminates, but if you don't have it due the day they give you notice, then you're doing nothing more than handing a tenant a knife to hold to your gut in a down market environment to use as a tool to renegotiate in a tough environment. That's a good point. And, you know, you're talking about those penalty costs there and, and getting that up front. And I think there's other ways to work that around if you're a tenant and and the landlord needs that, that long income stream to, to be able to provide that space for you and those uh, TI dollars. Some other ways may be to look at sublease rights and uh, make sure you have something that that works for you there. And, and one of the things that we see when we look at office values is we'll see a uh, sometimes, especially on a renewal of a big tenant, uh, the landlord didn't want to lose that tenant. They give a termination right, and then they come to us to sell it or refinance the building, and they're just really surprised how much they really killed the value of that asset. So I think that's, that's a big point. Well, we're close to the end of the show here, guys. I'd like to ask you for a quick tip for our listeners. David, quick tip on uh, leases. I think just understand primarily what falls in the category of capital R rent. Is that parking? Is is there anything that the land, that the tenant can't control that falls within that capital R rent that can put them in default and they've got the obligation to cure when it really wasn't necessarily directly their fault and responsibility? John? I think it's to know with whom you're dealing, whether it's your tenant. Do, you know, Checking their pulse is not enough when you're doing a lease. You need to do a background check on them. And if you're a tenant, check out your landlord. We talked about that, but there's big surprises on both sides every day. Good point, Robin. Never, ever lease to an attorney or law student. <laughs> Can we get an amen? <laughs> I like it when you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, John, David, Robin, thanks for joining us today. We sure appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, Michael. Great to be with you. Good to be with you. I enjoyed it. If you'd like more information, uh, to reach out to us. You can find all our contact information at commercialrealestateshow.com. And uh, you know, we're going to open a new studio for the Commercial Real Estate Show. We're going to have an open house if you can get to Atlanta on June 20th between 2 and 7, and you're in uh, a business related to the commercial real estate industry. Come out and say hello and uh, check out our new studio. And also next week, if you're in town, uh, you come to the IMN conference on uh, workouts and special assets. That'll be a great conference. Well, you're invited to join us next week. We'll look at the state of U.S. REITs. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Michael Bull. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show.
The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by professionals at Bull Realty, Cone Resnick, France Media, Atlanta Office Liquidators, and Weissman, Nowak, Curry, and Wilco. For more information about these companies or to access additional show podcasts or videos, visit commercialrealestateshow.com.